Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 22nd edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A new WCAB panel decision now permits the settlement of supplemental job displacement benefits with a Thomas finding. Here's what happened in the case of Beltran versus Structural Steel Fabricators and the State Compensation Insurance Fund. Juan Beltran filed an application alleging he sustained a CT injury due to repetitive heavy work while employed as a laborer by structural steel fabricators. The employer denied his claim because he did not report the injury prior to his termination for cause. The party submitted a walkthrough compromise and release agreement settling his claim for $12,500, which included a release of supplemental job displacement benefits. But the work comp judge would not approve the CNR because the parties may not settle or commute the supplemental job displacement benefit. When the defendant would not agree, the work comp judge approved the compromise and release agreement with the additional language, the parties may not settle or commute the supplemental job displacement benefit. So the defendant filed a petition for removal and the WCAB granted reconsideration in the panel decision. In 2012, the legislature passed SB 863, which added a provision prohibiting the settlement or commutation of a claim for the supplemental job displacement benefit. The prohibition was to prevent the cashing out of the retraining voucher. The defendant argued on reconsideration that where there is a good faith dispute as to the compensability of a claim of injury, the party should be permitted to settle applicant's entitlement to the supplemental job displacement benefit voucher. This is analogizing to the situation which existed with respect to the settlement of vocational rehabilitation benefits that was addressed way back in 1977 in the unbanked case of Thomas versus Sports Chalet. Thomas held that potential VR benefits could be resolved in a compromise and release when a serious and good faith issue exists, which, if resolved against the applicant, would defeat all right to compensation. Where the employer denies liability and raises an affirmative defense that could potentially defeat all right to compensation, a prohibition on settlement of the supplemental job displacement benefit voucher would require a trial to determine injury and the existence of a permanent partial disability in every case. The board in Thomas recognized that this would result in a effectively doing away with settlements, despite the existence of good faith disputes that could totally bar recovery. Accordingly, the WCAB held that, as in Thomas, where the trier of fact makes an express finding based upon the record that a serious and good faith issue exists to justify a release, a compromise and release agreement may be approved, which will relieve the employer from liability for the SJDB benefits. The issue of providing medical marijuana is getting closer to the doorstep of the Workers' Compensation Claim Department. And now the Ninth District Cir Circuit Court of Appeal, which presides over California and other western states, 
just ruled that the Department of Justice cannot spend money to prosecute people who violate federal drug laws if they are in compliance with the state medical marijuana laws. Despite laws passed by various states to the contrary, the sale of marijuana is still illegal under federal law. However, in 2014, Congress passed a budget rule which prohibits the Department of Justice from using federal funds to interfere with the implementation of state marijuana regulations. The ruling involves 10 cases that are consolidated interlocutory appeals and petitions for writ of mandamus arising out of orders entered by three district courts in two states within the Ninth Circuit jurisdiction. All appellants have been indicted for various infractions of the Federal Controlled Substances Act. They have moved to dismiss their indictments or to enjoin their prosecutions on the grounds that the Department of Justice is prohibited from spending funds to prosecute them. In the lead case of U.S. v. McIntosh, five co-defendants allegedly ran four marijuana stores in the Los Angeles area known as Hollywood, Compassionate Care, and Happy Days, and nine indoor marijuana growth sites in the San Francisco and Los Angeles areas. These co-defendants were indicted for conspiracy to manufacture, to possess with intent to distribute, and to distribute more than 1,000 marijuana plants. In the Lovan case, the DEA and Fresno County Sheriff's Office executed a federal search warrant on 60 acres of land located near Sanger, California, and located more than 30,000 marijuana plants on this property. Four co-defendants were indicted for manufacturing marijuana plants. Federal courts traditionally have refused, except in rare instances, to enjoin federal criminal prosecutions. Here, however, the court said that Congress has enacted an appropriations rider that specifically restricts the DOJ from spending money to pursue certain activities. The court said that once Congress has decided the order of priorities in a given area, it is for the courts to enforce them when enforcement is sought. A court sitting in equity cannot ignore the judgment of Congress deliberately expressed in legislation. The Appropriations Clause plays a critical role in the Constitution's separation of powers among the three branches of government and the checks and balances between them. Any exercise of a power granted by the Constitution to one of the other branches of government is limited by a valid reservation of congressional control over funds in the Treasury. The 10 cases were therefore remanded back to the District of Courts. If the Department of Justice wishes to continue these prosecutions, there must be evidentiary hearings to determine whether the defendant's conduct was completely authorized by state law. Despite the outcome, however, Judge O'Scanlan wrote that medical marijuana purveyors should not feel immune from federal law. He said that Congress could restore funding tomorrow, a year from now, or four years from now, and the government could then prosecute individuals who committed offenses while the government lacked funding. And the District Court of Appeals says that the WCAB has jurisdiction over the CHP 4800.5 benefits. Here's what happened in the public case of Hernandez versus the WCAB. 
Andrew Hernandez, a CHB sergeant in Valencia, slipped and fell and injured his spine in 2004 while assisting in the pursuit of a suspect who had fled on foot. The parties agree that his injuries were AOE-COE and that he was 35% disabled and could need future medical treatment. The principal issue concerned payments for temporary total disability. Although Hernandez received payments equal to the full amount of his salary during the period of his temporary disability, a portion of those sums was charged against his accrued annual vacation leave. Hernandez petitioned for recovery of the full amount he should have received as paid leave of absence benefits under Section 4800.5 plus penalties for unreasonable delay and interest. The work comp judge agreed and awarded the relief he requested, but the WCAB in a divided decision after reconsideration rescinded her ruling, concluded that his claim for reimbursement of accrued leave involved employee benefits and was outside the jurisdiction of the board. The Court of Appeal in the published opinion of Hernandez versus the WCAB disagreed and annulled the decision of the board and remanded the matter. The board has exclusive jurisdiction over all proceedings for the recovery of compensation or concerning any right or liability arising out of or incidental thereto, as well as for the enforcement against the employer or an insurer of any liability for compensation opposed upon the employer by the labor code in favor of the injured employee or his or her dependents or any third person. Section 48.5 subdivision D specifically confers board jurisdiction to award and enforce payments of the benefits provided CHP officers by that provision of the workers' compensation laws. The court went on to say that in light of this clear violation of Hernandez's rights under the workers' compensation laws, the argument the board lacks jurisdiction to prove a remedy borders on sophistry. There could be no dispute that Section 4800.5 obligated the CHP to pay Hernandez his full salary in lieu of disability payments while he was temporarily disabled. And now our fraud report. In 2015, Deputy U.S. Attorney General Sally Yates issued a memo entitled Individual Accountability for Corporate Wrongdoing, to all of the Department of Justice's prosecutors and civil litigators. This is known simply as the Yates Memo, and the directive signaled a new priority in the pursuit of corporate wrongdoing. A priority of pursuing, punishing, and deterring individual wrongdoers in addition to their corporate employers. Healthcare executives and administrators were put on notice that the Department of Justice will pursue individuals who may be responsible for corporate wrongdoing. And now, nearly a year later, some corporate executives have learned of the Yates memo the hard way. Back in 2007, more than 200 agents from the FBI and other agencies raided WellCare's headquarters and began a six-year investigation into the handling of state and federal money meant for behavioral care for the poor. Investigators said that WellCare was required to spend 80% of the money it received from the state of Florida for mental health services directly on patients. 
20% could go to administrative costs and profits. But if less than 80% of the money was spent on care, it was to be returned to the state. Authorities said WellCare funneled millions of dollars to a subsidiary disguising expenditures to avoid returning any of the unused money. In 2009, WellCare agreed to pay $80 million to avoid conviction on a charge of conspiracy to defraud the Florida Medicaid program and the Florida Healthy Kids Corporation, a program for low-income children. The same month, the company paid $10 million to settle a lawsuit from the Securities and Exchange Commission and was forced to restate several years of income downward as a result of the fraud. And in 2010, the company agreed to pay $137.5 million to the U.S. Department of Justice and other federal agencies to settle civil lawsuits. But the federal effort continued and went way beyond just the corporate identity. Welfare executives were ultimately indicted, and a federal appeals court just upheld the convictions of four healthcare executives who were found guilty. A 124-page opinion issued by the 11th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals panel affirmed their convictions and found overwhelming evidence that the WellCare executives participated in the fraudulent scheme. Convicted were former WellCare CEO Todd Farha, former Chief Financial Officer Paul Behrens, William Kale, Vice President of a subsidiary, and former WellCare, WellCare Vice President Peter Clay. The court rejected the defendant's argument that their actions were simple, routine, contractual, and regulatory disagreements. After this case, the best advice for the non-convicted corporate executives that orchestrate schemes of healthcare fraud is simply this. Read the Yates Memo. And in regulatory news, the DWC final version of the Medical Treatment Utilization Schedule regulations that updates the chronic pain medical guidelines and adopts opioid treatment guidelines are now in effect. The DWC proposed issuing these guidelines and began the process with a forum for public comment back in 2014. The guidelines that have been added to the MTUS provide best practices in appropriately treating injured workers while also enhancing safety in using these medications to manage pain. The new MTUS regulations went into effect on July 28, 2016 and will apply to any treatment request made on or after July 29. As a result of this regulatory process, claims administrators now have more clearly articulated guidance on when to approve or send a request for opioid prescription medication to UR for a more comprehensive review. And UR and the IMR reviewers have much better guidance on how to make decisions. For example, the regulations have precise requirements for prescribing opioids for subacute pain which is defined as pain beyond one month following an injury. The physician should screen for risk using validated tools and administer a baseline urine drug test in the office toward the beginning of the subacute period. And this section concludes that a history of opioid use disorder or substance use disorder is a relative contraindication to continued opioid use during the subacute phase. 
The executive summary of the new opioid guideline is 135 pages in length, and it is not a trivial task to understand the nuances of what has now become a more rigorous set of limits on unfettered prescribing of addictive pain medication. On this topic, the new regulation may be a game changer on the administration of medical care for pain patients. And in medical news, a new study published in the British Medical Journal says that exercise therapy is as effective as surgery for middle-aged patients with a common type of knee injury known as meniscus tear. The researchers suggest that supervised exercise therapy should be considered as a treatment option for middle-aged patients with this type of knee damage. Every year, an estimated 2 million people worldwide undergo knee arthroscopy at a cost of $7 billion. Yet current evidence suggests that arthroscopic knee surgery offers little benefit for most patients. So the researchers carried out a randomized controlled trial to compare exercise therapy alone with arthroscopic surgery alone in middle-aged patients with degenerative meniscus tears. A randomized controlled trial is one of the best ways for determining whether an intervention actually has the desired effect. Half the, of the patients in the study received a supervised exercise program over 12 weeks with two to three sessions each week. And the other half of the study received arthroscopic surgery followed by simple daily exercises to perform at home. Thigh muscle strength was assessed at three months and... Patients' reported knee function was recorded at two years. No clinically relevant difference was found between the two groups for outcomes such as pain, function in sport and recreation, and knee-related quality of life. At three months, muscle strength had improved in the exercise group. No serious adverse events occurred in either group during the two-year follow-up. 13 of the participants in the exercise group crossed over to the surgery group during the follow-up period with no additional benefit. The authors say the results of the study should encourage clinicians and middle-aged patients with degenerative meniscal tear and no radiographic evidence of osteoarthritis to consider supervised structured exercise therapy as a treatment option. Medical care under the California workers' compensation system is based upon evidence-based medicine. One would hope that the UR and IMR process has physicians who are aware of the findings of these studies when they make a decision to allow or turn down a request for arthroscopic knee surgery. And another new study may lend support to apportionment of permanent disability in degenerative joint disease claims. Osteoarthritis, also known as degenerative joint disease, is a condition in which cartilage, the tissue that protects the end of each bone in a joint, wears away, causing the underlying bones to rub together. This can cause pain, swelling, and poor joint movement. As the condition worsens, the bones may lose shape. Additionally, growths called bone spurs may arise, and bits of bone and cartilage can break off and float around the space in the joint. This can trigger an inflammatory response that exacerbates pain as well as cartilage and bone damage. 
Osteoarthritis is the most common form of arthritis in the United States, affecting around 27 million adults. While the condition can arise in all age groups, it is most common among people aged 65 and older. And there is no cure for osteoarthritis, only therapies that can help manage symptoms. These include pain and anti-inflammatory medications such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and corticosteroids. In some cases, joint surgery may be required. Osteoarthritis is often a factor in workers' compensation orthopedic claims, especially claims based on a continuous trauma theory. While it is true that osteoarthritis may be aggravated by work factors, at the same time the permanent disability can be apportioned to causation. And now a new clinical study reveals new information about the causation of osteoarthritis. Researchers have uncovered evidence that cellular senescence is a cause of osteoarthritis, and they suggest targeting these cells could offer a promising way to prevent or treat the condition. Cellular senescence is the process by which cells stop dividing. Senescent cells accumulate with age and cause severe damage to tissues and organs contributing to a number of age-related diseases. Researchers at the Mayo Clinic published their findings in the Journals of Gerontology, Series A, Biological Sciences and Medical Sciences. Osteoarthritis has previously been associated with the accumulation of senescent cells in or near the joints. However, this is the first time there has been an evidence of a causal link. The concept that there is a relationship between degenerative joint disease and aging is not new. However, apportionment to the aging process is difficult in litigation when faced with arguments that the aging process alone is as a causative factor is speculative. However, now adding an understanding of the cellular mechanism behind degenerative joint disease to the apportionment argument in litigation weighs in on the side that any speculation is now less likely. And in other news, Aetna announced that it will walk away from more than two-thirds of the Obamacare exchange markets it participated in this year. Aetna will maintain a presence in just four states, Delaware, Iowa, Nebraska, and Virginia, down from 15 states this year. Aetna covered about 838,000 people through the Obamacare exchange in its 15 states as of June. Aetna, the third largest insurance company in the U.S., says the market's financials are unworkable, pointing out that it has lost more than $430 million since January 2014 on its individual products. And Aetna is not the only major player to walk away from the Obamacare exchanges. More than 40 payers of various sizes have similarly chosen to stop selling plans in one or more rating areas in the individual public exchanges over the 2015 and 2016 plan years. Aetna's announcement comes on the heels of an announcement by Anthem that it is now projecting a mid-single-digit losses in the individual plans it sells on the exchanges. 
Humana says it would dial back its participation on the exchanges from 15 states to just 11 earlier this month. United Health Group plans to remain on three or fewer exchange markets. And Cigna has said that it is losing money on the exchanges, but the insurer is planning to expand its marketplace presence to three new states in 2017. One major issue is the risk pool, the balance of the healthy and sick people who incur major medical costs. Edna's decision does not affect people covered by the company this year, but when they look for coverage next year, they'll need to pick a new carrier. Some consumers will only have one insurer to choose from when they buy 2017 coverage. About 11 million people were signed up for Obamacare plans at the end of March. The workers' compensation claims industry had believed that the availability of low-cost insurance to those who were previously uninsured would reduce the filing of marginal industrial claims. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.